Welcome to Innovations in Education. I'm your host, David Adams, CEO of the Urban Assembly. And on this show, we bring guests every single episode who have made things work in public education. This show is about the innovators. This show is about the folks who are solving problems. This show is about making things work in education. Now, there's a lot of shows out there talking about what's wrong in the education systems, and those are great shows. There's some shows talking about what we're not doing well, and there's a lot to learn from those, but that's not this show. This show is going to be featuring educators who are making things work for young people and improving public education. Doug Lamoff is the author of the international bestseller, Teach Like a Champion, now in his 3.0 version, The Coach's Guide to Teaching, and with his TGLAC team colleagues, Reading Reconsidered, his latest book is Reconnect, Building School Culture for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging, which outlines priorities and strategies for schools in the post-pandemic era. He has a BA in English from Hamilton College and an MA in English from Indiana University, as well as an MBA from Harvard University's Business School. He lives in Albany with his wife and three children, and I'm very, very happy to welcome you to the show today, Doug Lamoth. Thanks, David. It's great to see you, and thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to see you as well. Now, Doug, in this bio, we talked about some incredible accomplishments that you've had with Teach Like a Champion, the work that you've done in the post-pandemic era. I want to really focus on the notion of Teach Like a Champion. It's been 13 years since the book came out. We're on a third edition now with millions of copies sold. I want you to reflect back for me what this journey has been like, what you've learned, what you're still working on. Well, someone once said to me, I hate writing books, but I like having written books. That's kind of how I feel about Teach Like a Champion. It's so hard to write and it gets harder and harder each time I rewrite it. Every time I write it, I think that is my last book. But then, you know, I have a really wonderful job, which is I get to study teachers with a group of people who are brilliant and there's just so much to learn and so many insights. And so usually it's like two days after I wash my hands of the last manuscript that I'm watching a video of some incredible teacher somewhere and I wish I'd mentioned that or hadn't even thought of that. And so if I had to describe that 13 year journey, I would say it's constant learning. And it just reminds me of what incredible problem solvers teachers are. One of my books you noted is about sport and sports. Yeah. And you know, athletes make so many decisions in the course of a game over and over and over again. And teachers are really the same hundreds of decisions over and over again in the course of a performance, a much more important performance, probably than, you know, your local NFL franchise. And so I just find the quality of a master's decision-making to be really, really fascinating and inspiring. And so I love that part of the work. Take me back 13 years. A lot of people have thought about teaching. Uh, a lot of people have been teachers. What's the one moment in which you think, you know what? I should start to compile some key moves in the classroom that will help teachers be better. What's that incident or opportunity that it pops up in your world? Well, I would say, first of all, like I was writing this well before I thought I was writing a book and I just kind of had this document that I had written and I would share with some people. And every once in a while, someone would email me and they'd be like, I have your document. And I have a question for you about it. And I'd be like, I wouldn't actually write this back, but like, who are you? How have you gotten this document? But mm. I, I think it kind of tells you how hungry people are for guidance about all the decisions you have to make and all of the unspoken areas of teaching, you know, well-meaning, smart people get sent into classrooms where they struggle and often fail all the time. You know, the failure rate for teachers in the inner city is 50% over three years, according to TNTB. In other words, people take the job of teaching in, in our cities 
and they know they're not going to be paid as well as they might if they do some other job and they know it's going to be hard and they know what the work conditions are going to be like and 50% of them leave within three years. Mm. Nobody likes to feel like they put their heart and soul into work and not be successful. And maybe the idea started, I went to visit a school with a colleague of mine and I really, really liked the people who were running the school. They had best intentions for kids in mind for sure. And they were trying to do everything right, but it was still an exercise in good people failing. If I'm honest, the school was not good enough for the kids that were in that building and they were trying hard and they wanted to serve those kids. And I just remember driving back from that school with my colleague and we were talking about the long drive back to my home. And we were, we were talking about the fact that the leader of the school had been to visit Kip in New York City while Dave Levin was still there. And, you know, Dave Levin is just a legend and he's a fantastic teacher. And it's interesting because I had just been to Kip too and I had watched Dave Levin. And when I watched Dave Levin, he was, I guess he had had a math teacher and she had left. And so he was teaching a double section. So it was Dave and 50 kids. And they were sitting on the radiators and that, you know, like in every corner of the room. And that lesson was fire. It was so good. Yeah. And this head of the school that I was visiting had also been to visit Kip and Bronx. And I was like, well, what did you take away? And if you were going to list the 50 most important things about Dave's school, he had probably noticed number 14, number 28, and number 36. You know, he just hadn't noticed what my colleague and I thought were like, what are the most important things? And so we just started to like, to try and make a list. What are the things that make a lesson like that? So, so when you walk into, you know, and pe people talk about how challenging it is to have large class sizes and here's someone with 50 kids in the room and it's, it's like the room is electric. What are the things that that teacher does that make it so special? You know, you noted that I'm an English major, which just goes to show you like Writing uh, books, English major, uh -huh. and you're living the dream here. And naming things, even if you don't agree. I mean, there are people who don't agree with a lot of things in the book. Schools I love who don't agree with everything in the book, I'm fine with that. I think there's power in names. Once you have a name for something, you can conceive of it and you can talk about it and you can adapt it and you can discuss it with your colleagues. And now you have higher level problem solving discussions about should you have cold called there? If you could, could you have made your cold call more positive? Why would you cold call there? Why would you not cold call there? How do you increase the ratio? How, how do you cause students to do more thinking, et cetera? So I think that's sort of the origin story of Teach Like a Champion. There is something you did say, and I, I want to really double tap this. This is notion you talk about naming, right? I was having yeah. a conversation with somebody and they were like, okay, chimpanzees can display numeracy insofar as being able to tell the difference between larger and smaller in a group, right? Really humans are the only ones who can manipulate the concept of numbers and do calculations with them because we create these symbols to lay on top of the numbers. Yeah. yeah. And then when you said the naming, it just seems so resonant, right? Because it's the first step. If you can't name it, say it, hold it, you can't talk about it, manipulate it, improve it, do, do other things. Yeah, I 100% agree. That's a fascinating example. And I would almost go a step further and say you almost can't conceptualize it if you can't name it. There's a little bit of a digression, but I have this book about sport coaching. Yes. When I first started writing it, I kind of tried to keep it a secret from my the people on my staff. Cause I was like, you know, the work we do in schools is far more important, but like, you know, 20 days a year, I go off and do something with a sports franchise, but I learned so much watching people learn sports and there's so many, you know, it's different, but there's so many analogies. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is profoundly important in a sports setting, again, is vocabulary. Yeah. People have to make incredibly fast decisions 
in playing sport and they have to make coordinated decisions. So if you're a soccer team, it's 11 of you who have to problem solve at the same time. What is the killer app? It turns out that I would argue the killer app is vocabulary, which is people say things to athletes all the time, get in the space, get between the lines, you know, receive the ball on the half turn. And half the time people have no idea what they're talking about, or they kind of vaguely understand the term and lots of people use it to mean something different. And it's almost like, well, I was watching, I was watching a soccer game with a, a colleague of mine. He's from England and he played at a very high level and he just know, he knows so much about the game. And he observed this player receive the ball with the first touch. And what he said was he sealed his opponent with the first touch, meaning that he took the first, his first touch across his body so that now his body's between his opponent and the ball. I'd never heard that phrase before. I'm watching this match with him and suddenly I start to notice how often players sealed their opponent with the first touch. And the next week I'm watching a match and suddenly I'm like, oh, it's not like suddenly players have started sealing their opponent with, it's all been happening through my 30 years of watching soccer games. And I've never, because no one's ever given me a phrase to describe it, I've never really conceptualized it. And I think it's similar in, in teaching, which is when we have a name for something, we start to see it and understand it and can talk about it. And I think that that's part of why I keep rewriting the book because you give people vocabulary for things and they start to conceptualize them and they start to use it in ways that you didn't anticipate and they bring new things to it. But I think it all starts with shared vocabulary. I can't agree more. As you know, I have a background in social emotional learning and yeah. the example we talk a lot about is the emotion of anger and the difference between anger and disappointment. And when we teach our kids, one of the things we might say is your father didn't make your game and not to disparage fathers, but that's an often an example we use. And the kids said that made me angry. And then we teach them disappointment and they're like, oh, I think it was disappointed. And then they start to feel disappointed, right? Like they just didn't have the language. They literally couldn't feel the emotion. Yeah, I think it's why vocabulary is so profoundly important in the class and often underestimated in the classroom because I love the direction that we're going with this, which is it's not just for teachers, it's for students. When we can arm them to differentiate and understand the emotions and the feelings and the responses that they have, if we give them words to, to define it and to parse it and to be more precise about what they're experiencing. I kind of get into that a little bit in the book Reconnect, but I think it's so important, which is having in a school a vocabulary for the people that we want to be in the world, you know, and we talk seriously about those words, you know, what is virtue? Yeah. What is integrity? Let's spend time talking about those things so that we can start to see them in the world around us and see them in ourselves. So many applications of power and vocabulary. One of the things I talk about with sports teams is like, one of the first things you should do, like if you're a club and you're a basketball club and you have, you know, six different teams in different age groups, one of the first things you should do is have a shared vocabulary list. So the coaches are speaking in the same language. And when I go from the U11s to the U12s, like my U12 coach is talking about the things that I talked about as a U11 player. And that allows me to coalesce my experience around it. And again, I don't think it's that much different in school if we have a shared vocabulary list of the things that we want to talk about in the world. I can almost conjure them into my students' perception of the world. I spent 21 years in the military. One of the things that we always talk about is words matter. Don't use doctrinal terms for X when you mean doctrinal terms for Y. And one of the reasons why in the military is like, it's really specific around what you're trying to accomplish and the way that vocabulary creates not just a shared concept of the operation, but the way that vocabulary creates clarity in what the end state we're trying to achieve in. You're speaking my language here is my point as to why we use words, right? Because we have concepts behind them. 
First of all, I so appreciate your 21 years of service. And I think that service is so important because, I mean, obviously like serves the nation. Thank you. But it also builds belonging and community. And I think the vocab, like having a shared vocabulary is like every culture is defined by its distinctive language, right? And we all speak the same language and that one is a way that we communicate, but two, it's a way that we tell ourselves that we belong to something. I, I have never served, I'm embarrassed to say, but I suspect that that's a big part of the military is when we use the language that we develop together, we remind ourselves that we're a part of something and that cohesiveness and that belonging which is important to our shared success. And I think people misunderstand happiness. Happiness is, you know, when we want kids to thrive, happiness is so important. We want kids to thrive. And a lot of the research on happiness would identify three drivers of happiness and it would be pleasure and community and meaning. And I think that most people think of happiness as a synonym for pleasure, but actually of those three, pleasure correlates least strongly to happiness. Meaning and community correlate much more strongly to people's sense of happiness in the world. So when we, you know, among other things, have a shared vocabulary and we make people feel like they're a part of something and we, we all have a way of doing things and we have a way of talking about things. I remind people that they're part of a purposeful endeavor and that they belong to community and that I think brings about happiness faster than, you know, trying to, I don't know what people do to like find happiness through pleasure, surf the perfect wave at dawn in Costa Rica. I just don't think you're ever going to find it that way. Yeah. There's a lot going on there. And I mean, I want to unpack a little bit of this and the notion of meaning and belonging and community, I think is something you raised up there and how we create a sense of purpose and a shared purpose. Mm -hmm. And I use the word forge a lot, right? With the idea of having different metals being forged into some sort of shape and there's mm -hmm. heat and pressure and all these elements, right, that are re reflected in the notion. And I just, I want to talk about the post-pandemic space with you and a little bit about like our challenge to create common identities. And I think people's preference for independence over interconnectedness, even though we mm -hmm. know interconnectedness mm -hmm. drives a sense of purpose. Yeah, I think that's so true and so powerful. You know, I think most sort of factors in society are not linear. Like a good example of not linear would be watering a plant more causes it to grow up to a certain point, and then you start to overwater it and it diminishes what happens to the plant. Individualism for the most part is a very good thing. You only have to look at what happens in China to what it looks like in Russia, mm -hmm. you know, to understand how important individualism is. Can we go too far? Can we become so obsessed with it that we become disconnected from our desire to belong to things. I quote you in Reconnect, you have this really beautiful phrase about that people want to be claimed and that schools go claim people. And I think schools are reluctant in a way to establish a strong enough culture that says like, you belong to something. Yes. And for you to belong to it, it has to be, it can't all be easy, right? It has to be meaningful and purposeful, but there has to be some like, we have to work together for things that aren't easy and that's part of what makes us feel like we've accomplished something together. Yeah. I just finished reading The Upside of Stress by Kelly McGonigal. She's a researcher and teacher at Stanford. And she talks about initially in her career, she lectured on stress and she sort of, she says she believed the research that said that stress is harmful and stress is destructive. And she was sort of did trainings for people on how to avoid stress in their lives. Mm. 
And she said, when I was looking for some research to support this, and I, and I, I started reading the research, and actually I, I was surprised because when I read the research, it didn't say what I thought it was going to say. And that actually the people who have the happiest lives, the most fulfilling lives, and who are healthiest to live the longest actually live with stress. What they have is a different mindset towards stress. Mm-hmm. Mindset can be incredibly powerful in shaping how you react to something. But she said, you know what, the more I read the research, I realized that stress again is nonlinear. Can there be too much stress? You know, can we put people under toxic stress? Yes. But no stress is also not, not beneficial. We need to prove to ourselves that we can handle stress. And some degree of stress causes us to achieve more. And stress binds us together, right? She calls us the tend and befriend response among people that when yeah. we go through something, this is like, this is why sports are, you know? Yes. So like when we go through something together, not just sports, right? Like we're the, doing the performance, the musical performance, the drama performance, or the community, you know, like training in the community army. event, training the army, putting our community event together. Like we work hard and it's stressful and it, that brings us together and makes bonds between us. I hear that in your description of of claiming students and yeah, giving them meaningful work to do, challenging them, making them feel important to the endeavor. I mean, I think there are a lot of ways, you know, that we will claim people, but I think it's really important that kids describe themselves as athletes all the time. I'm a basketball player. I'm a soccer player. They don't really say, they don't describe themselves as students or like I go to this. Their identity is not as tied up in what they do in school as, they, yeah. as it is in the other things that they do in their lives. And I think that we could. We could probably borrow some of that or adapt some of that and make the students feel like part of who I am is who I am when I'm in this building. So as we move on to some other ideas, the one thing that really hit me was the concept of watering the plant. And I don't have cats, Doug, but I assume that like hanging out with cats is a similar level of too much affection, too little affection. That's what I get from people. That idea of the just right and the nuance. I want to talk about nuance because I know in, in your third edition, nuance has been something you put a lot of effort into understanding how people used your book, understanding how you want people to use your book. Tell me a little bit about what does it mean to create more nuance in some of the techniques that folks yeah. pulled out? Well, I think the techniques in the book, I hope they're powerful. I think they're powerful, right? You have to be careful with powerful things, right? They can be powerful for good, but can you misuse them? Of course. Um, so I have to be really careful about how I use them and understand the purpose. And I think in writing the third version of the book, there are lots of times I've been to a classroom where someone will welcome me and say, I'm doing TLAC or we're doing TLAC here. With pride though, you got to contextualize, like, I got you Doug, right? Yeah. And sometimes it's either not what I would choose to do, or sometimes I have even a stronger response and I'm like, don't, that's not, that is not what I was imagining. And I think I have to. I think there are a lot of questions involved in seeing someone who values and appreciates your work and the way that they interpret it is by your criteria, not serving students optimally. Some of it, I think is potential, you know, misunderstandings and they have to like write it more clearly to make the why clear and the how clear, but also I have to assume that like some of it is on, some of it is on me for not being clear enough. And because I have more to learn, right? You know, at some point you have to publish the thing and you know. I think there are some criticisms of the book that I think are like motivated reasoning, but I think there are also some good criticisms of the book that I've tried to listen to and, and make some changes to make sure that when people use it, they use it successfully to help students thrive and achieve and grow. 
So I really, really tried to like write to two audiences, I think to the audience of people who believe in the book and to make sure that at the end of the day, when they've used it, they've done a great job for students. And also I think respond to some of the criticisms that I felt like were not warranted or were poorly thought through. And I wanted to dispel them. I mean, there are people that I'm never going to convince and I don't spend a lot of time worrying about that, but I want people who are inclined to love students by having high expectations for them, to believe in them, to feel comfortable and confident that they're executing in a way that is right. Yeah. I know we've talked about this before and I want to make sure that I really appreciate and honor your bravery in spending time to work to improve what's happening in classrooms. I think we have a culture in which the folks who critique have more cachet than the folks who try and the folks who build. Mm -hmm. I got Teddy Roosevelt, you know, you can see it in my back, the man in the arena, right? And I don't know that we're going to move in education if we don't believe in something. And it could be right, it could be wrong, it could be more right than wrong, more wrong than right, but we have to believe in something. And I want to say publicly and just want to note how much I appreciate your bravery and continuing to refine not only your thinking, but get out there and say, hey, this is a starting point by which I have accumulated evidence for what I think can help kids. And I think if we have more educators who have a belief, we can get better faster rather than educators who spend much of their time trying to tear down either other people or what's happening in the space. So I just want to name that. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's scary being a teacher in a lot of different ways. This is sort of like, you know, one of the thousand things that doesn't really get talked about. It's scary going live and doing something really hard in front of 30 kids, five times a day and trying to do something new and more challenging that, you know, will serve kids, but like, will be difficult to implement and you could crash on that implementation in front of, you know, a room full of 14 year olds. Right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and that takes. It takes bravery and clarity. And I'll also think that like, we should acknowledge that teaching is a field full of smart people. And for some smart people, it is easier to rationalize why you shouldn't do those difficult things and take the risk of doing them. And to say, you shouldn't, why should a classroom be orderly in the first place? Why would the adult want to tell young people what to do? Adults shouldn't tell young people what to do. I just think that's a profound disservice to young people. But of course there is someone smart who can rationalize why you shouldn't do those things. The fact is to be teachers, to serve students, we have to do them. We have to do a series of high difficulty dives in front of a crowd that can sometimes be unforgiving. It's just the nature of classrooms, right? There are wonderful kids in the classroom and there are kids who would be just as happy to see you crash in front of a room full of kids. And, you know, that's just some nature of human beings, the human beings in the midst of being in an institution that they may not, you know, may or may not be sold on yet. So. Yeah. It's a scary job. And I think that that's just to go back to the origins. I want people to feel like they have tools that they can go to, to solve a problem. It's one of the hidden parts of teaching. I just remember like in my years of being a teacher, like and get to the end of the day and I would have had so many interactions with so many kids. And sometimes, you know, like always one of my five classes would have gone badly and they'd be like, why did I even take this job? You know, am I ever going to be good at it? Or I couldn't remember which interaction made me feel whatever, you know, elation or despondency or whatever. And I just think having a set of tools to say, okay, what well, can I try differently tomorrow? When I realized, okay, the problem was this moment. Only start by being able to read about and think about some tangible moves that I can make in that moment. And I might read about it and be like, oh, 
you know, not for me or, oh, that might work if I tweaked it this way, or it might be like, yeah, I'm going to try that. Gonna, here's a teacher doing it. And I think I can do that too. I think those are all valid responses, but people deserve to have a set of tools available to them for all the incredibly challenging situations they find themselves in day after day as teachers. If they're not successful as teachers, they'll leave the professional. Yeah. Is there a recruiting problem for teaching? Sure. But I think it has a retention problem that's bigger than the recruiting problem, right? There are thousands of lawyers and real estate agents who are former teachers out there. They also serve society, but I think they'd serve society a lot more if they were still in the class. Let me talk about toolboxes because we talked a little bit earlier about coaching and the work you do to understand coaching and athletics. And one of the things I know about really great coaches is that one, they can describe the current state of what's happening either on a team or an individual. <laughs> they have a vision of what it should look like, the end state, the desired end state. And more specifically for me, they have a toolbox of interventions that they've used in the past that they have confidence in that can move teams, people through desired state, current state, and end state. So walk me through like why coaching? What's this relationship with teaching? How do we get these toolboxes that, that you talked about? Because some people develop them, you know, just by experience. It's strange to me how rarely people in the teaching profession get to see other people teach and develop other potential models. I mean, I think one of the key things that a great teacher or a great coach needs to be successful is a really clear mental model of what it looks like. Yeah. I don't think you even know when you have a mental model, but like a great example of a mental model is you're teaching your classroom. It's sixth grade math. You have your back to the classroom and you're writing on the board and there's noise behind you. And you're like, you don't even turn around because you're like, that is the type of noise that is supposed to be happening in the class. And then there's a change in the noise and you're like, oh, something is up behind me. Right. And that is a you comparing the noise that you're perceiving to your mental model of like, what is good noise to what is not good noise in the classroom. Yeah. And you, you know, you get there through like five, 10, 15 years of teaching, right? So you have this mental model of like the noises you would hear, you know, like you need to have a really good mental model of what, not just a good classroom, but what a great classroom looks like. And I just think of like how many teachers out there have either never seen a great classroom or just don't see enough other teachers to constantly be able to refine their mental model of what great looks like. And the, the example I gave you of noise is like a relatively trivial one, but like, what does it look like when students are working hard and struggling with an idea and they're writing about it and they're expanding their thinking, you know, what should I see? What should the task look like? And I think that you can get a lot of that through observation. I think that like, you know, great coaches, you know, in the premier league, you're three losses away from losing your job. It doesn't matter how good you are. You lose three matches in a row and people are talking about like, are you going to get the sack? That's an intense competitive environment. And in that kind of competitive environment, people are hungry to learn and they're always visiting each other. And particularly, I think people love visiting coaches from like other sports. You know, they're constantly pushing themselves to be better, to be the best version of themselves that they can possibly be. And I think as you pointed out, they're not afraid to have a clear sense for how they want to do it. It's one soccer coach who I admire, Marcelo Bielsa says, coach cannot not be an advocate for the way that you think the game should be taught and the game should be played. And if you don't, and if you're not clear on it, players notice and they get frustrated when there isn't a clear vision of like, how are we going to accomplish this thing together? And I just think that's another risk of teaching, which is you have to build a cohesive, intact culture that has a vision for what learning and belonging mean in the classroom. So to do that, you have to just... You have to have a vocabulary and you have to have seen a lot of classrooms. You know, that's why the videos I think were such an important part of football too. Yeah, I was 
making that connection in my mind as you talk about coaching video, teaching video, your use of video to really isolate practices and give visibility to the interaction that displays the kind of concept that you want. I want to think about this concept of videos, how coaches use videos, how teachers use videos, how you use videos. How come we haven't seen more of it in the education space? Give me a, your, your sense on this. I think you're right that we need to use it. It's a very powerful teaching tool. It's proliferated incredibly in some ways over the last 10 or 20 years, but it also like not enough. It's such a powerful tool in part because it shapes your eyes. It shapes your perception, right? You see a thousand classrooms. But I think one challenge is that people are afraid to be videotaped. Yeah. You know, people often are re resistant or reluctant to be videotaped. And I think that's for two reasons. One is because I just like one of our rules is we will only ever show video of successful teachers. And sometimes in our workshops, people would say, I want to see something that looks, you know, I want to see someone sailing. Cause that's like, you know, these teachers are all successful. They're all, you know, like the kids are all great, you know, which I think is fascinating that sometimes people will respond to a video of a really outstanding teacher and they'll say, well, if my kids behave like that, that way, I could teach that way. And I would say you're actually confusing causation there. If you were able to teach that way, the kids would change their behavior, right? People respond to the environment. We're too ready to say like, kids won't do that. They won't like that. You know, they will. And I think that they will. If they know that you do it out of respect, yeah. caring, can you push them? Not all of them. It's a full range of kids we have out there in the world, but most of them will be with you. You teach well, but if people are reluctant to be videotaped also because, you know, if you're not confident with what's going to happen in your classroom, you're worried about what you'll see. And you're worried about what other people might see. And so I think building a culture where it's really clear to people that when we start videotaping you, I'm not out to get you, I'm not to get you better. I'm here to help you see yourself, honestly. And then if it's really, really good, I want other people to see you too. So that, you know, the teaching profession, I sometimes say in workshops, education is full of gaps, gaps between, you know, what the most fortunate kids get and what the least fortunate kids get, but also gaps between our country and other countries and the gap between what the best classrooms do and what classrooms could do, right? There's always a gap. And I think that there's always some teacher somewhere who has found a way across that gap. Mm. And the problem is, you know, to go back to the notion that like 50% of teachers leave within three years, a hundred yards down the hallway from some teacher who's about to crash out of the profession. There's some master teacher who's figured out the solution to the thing that is killing her in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't even know that teacher exists and she'd never seen her teach. And we've never sat her down and said, let me show you what Skivens looks like. She starts class, how she does it so that you can do it too. And you can get your class off to a great start. And once that happens, everything's going to fall into place for you. So I think it's an incredibly powerful teaching tool video. I think one of the other reasons why video is not that effective is because we show it in two big chunks and there's yeah. so much happening in video. One of our kind of rules of thumb is if you're more than three minutes of video, you either need to pause it and let people talk about it, process what they've seen that show some more, or you need to shorten the video because it's just so much to pay attention to and so much to analyze and your working memory will just be overloaded by it. It's a dense medium that requires thoughtful, intentional presentation and teaching. You know, one of the hidden challenges of a profession is most adult PD is terrible or the like. Of course, teachers come into PD and cross their arms and look at their watches and be like, you know, how soon can I get out of here? And, you know, because PD is not very good. And people who give their lives to this profession in service to young people deserve to be in professional development that lights their minds on fire and makes them fascinated with the work and makes them better at the work. And 
honors them by being challenging and rich and great. And I think video can do that, but it doesn't automatically do that. It's a really, really hard tool to use effectively from a teaching perspective. When you gave your explanation, one of the things I highlighted is you said a teacher down the hall in your example, and you gave such a specific kind of vignette who has really great entrance procedures, right? It wasn't like who was a good teacher, but the problem that that teacher is struggling with could be answered with this really specific thing. And it just goes back to your use of language and your ability to, to create chunks of information and schemas that are small enough for people to feel effective with. And one of the things I think when we're in the classrooms and PD and all that stuff is like, we talk so broadly, and I'm saying we, even at the mm -hmm. UA, like, yeah. this large thing. And one of the things I've been working on is trust is focusing on a discrete interaction and watching that improve. Yes. I think that's so profoundly important for two reasons. One of which is if I can show you how to give better directions to your class, you like, you've got a first year teacher and his classroom is on fire, right? It's just like, nobody does what he asks. He knows he's struggling. You'd be like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to you about giving concrete observable directions, what we call the what to do cycle. His first reaction might be like, come on. Like it's on fire and you're going to tell us that you have giving directions. But I think two things happen. One is one of the most influential books that I've, I've ever read is Chip and Dan Heath's book, Switch, sure. which is how to make change and change is hard. And they have this beautiful phrase, which is they say, well, two things. We always assume that the size of the problem has to match the size of the solution, but actually often very small things can have cascading effects in complex environments. And so if you start by giving better directions, like it will, you will be shocked by all the things that start happening because of it. And they also say that oftentimes what appears to be a resistance to change is actually a lack of clarity about what to do first. Yeah. You know, so if I can just break it down, but here's the first step, I want you to walk into the classroom, I want you to give a very clear direction. And then I want you to narrate the first three kids that do it. Thank you, David. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you, Shauna. And then if anyone doesn't do it, you just very quietly whisper to them, I'd like to see your pencil moving, please. I need to see your pencil moving, please. Right. And then I want you to scan the room so that students know that you're looking to see whether they actually do what you're asking to do. That's gives me clarity to first step. And it's going to actually have a profound effect on the class. And then to your original point, if I can get that to happen in your classroom and you can see the change the next day, now you believe that you can get better. That's right. You believe that the classroom is a reflection of your decisions and that professional development can help you. And if I have a teacher who believes those things, we can't make that teacher successful. It's on us as an organization, period, end of story. They're willing to work hard and, you know, I'm willing to own what happens in the classroom. We owe it to them to make them successful. Yeah. I couldn't have said it better. As we kind of close up, I do want to think about some of these big ideas. And I know you're a father. And I know as a person whose legacy is invested in improving teaching and learning, there must be some sort of overlap between who you are in the classroom and who you are as a parent. So what's been your favorite move from Teach for Like a Champion that has got you a win and or a story that you think about yeah. as ideas? Well, this is fascinating because I just did a podcast a couple of weeks ago where I interviewed my two older kids. They're in college now about my parenting, you know, kind of let them review it. Not blessed, by the way. That's quite the brief <laughs> thing on record, you know. It was a little bit scary, but they're great kids and we're very, very close. I, you know, I, I, I think maybe that's part of what's so interesting, which is like my wife and I are strict parents and my kids would talk about it all the time. They'd be like, how come you have all these rules that no one else has? 
And there was definitely like a year and a half for each of them when they were like 16, when they did not like the rules that we had. I always tried to make them understand the why behind the rules and that I love them and that's why the rules were there. But there were times when they did not like them anyway, but we've always been very close. Mm. And so I felt pretty confident that they knew that they, you know, I think this is one of the hidden things about the classroom. I talk about this is warm strict, which is like loving and strict. They're independent variables. You know, you could be both loving and strict. You could be strict, but not loving. You could be neither, right? We have all taught kids who've grown up in environments where there's neither sufficient caring nor sufficient strictness. And so I was pretty confident that my kids understood. I have to say, like, I love the conversation where in the end they were like, you know, most of our disagreements were about social media and cell phones. Look, we had a rule that your cell phone does not go in your room at night. And at 10 o'clock, your cell phone comes down to the kitchen. Um, it lives in the kitchen. And my son was talking about how mortifying it was to him at 16. And he'd be texting someone. I assume it's like, you know, either one of his buddies or a girl or something. And he'd yeah. be like, you know, I have to, sorry, I have to sign off now. My parents make me put my phone in the kitchen at night. And he was like, he actually said, he was like, I don't think you could understand how hard that was for me as a 16 year old. But then when I asked him, you know, will you be strict with your kids and will you have similar rules with your kid? And he's like, absolutely. Like, I understand now why you did it. It wasn't easy for me, but I see the benefits that it brought to me, which is, you know, I couldn't love my kids any more than I do. And, you know, people ask me this all the time. Like, Would you want your kids to go to a teach at the champion school? Absolutely. I yeah. want them to go to a school that loves them that. as much and I think in the end that they understand where we're coming from and the benefits that came to them from, in this case, having more self-control over their phones and not, and all the things that didn't happen to them because of their phones, that they understood the why behind the rule. I just, I don't think that young people are supposed to like every decision that adults make on their behalf. That's part of being an adult. It's the hardest part of being a parent by far. I just remember saying to my kids on this podcast, like it's the hardest part of parenting is like knowing that it was really hard for you to go through that and to have to put yourself out of the way and knowing that many other people's parents were not doing that mm -hmm. and to feel awful about it sometimes and to still do it because I know that it's the right decision in the long run. And I think they're like, again, this analogy in the classroom, which is kids should always know that we care about them. And they should always know that we respect them and how important their opportunity to learn is. But if we're doing our jobs right, they won't love every decision that we make. We're going to give them homework because homework is really good for them. And they're not going to love that sometimes. And we're going to say, you may not, if it's a young man, that you may not speak to a young woman in this building like that. We may not use that word right ever. Right. And I just, I think that is a gift to young people to teach them those limits. And he may not like it, but I think when he's a dad, he's going to appreciate it. I appreciate that a lot. And I appreciate that response and the honesty that you had there. We think about education in terms of investments. You spent a good amount of time investing in what it means to be an effective teacher. And as we think about your legacy, I want to end with a, an idea of what you want your legacy to be in education, what you'd like me to think about when I'm talking about you to my friends and, and at night and, and what you gave to the space. So I want to give that to you. What will be oh, your so legacy? Nice Gosh. I, well. Maybe have, there's like a legacy for teachers and a legacy for students. Mostly I would like to serve teachers really well. 
grateful for teachers, believe that it's the most important job in society, and it's an incredibly hard job. Mm. And if you're going to give your life to it, you deserve to be successful. So, I mean, I would love it if my legacy was, I was able to make a whole lot of people much more successful if there were, and, and know that they made difficult student lives and allowed some people to stay in the profession who might have struggled otherwise. And I think that when you're successful at your work, you love your work. And that's really important. You deserve to not only be successful, but to love teaching because it's a great job when it's, you know, I would say the same thing on the parenting life. I loved being a dad. I still am a dad, but like I'm, a lot of people are like, oh, having teenagers is so hard. And I was always like, I love it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I hope that the legacy would be helping people be more successful and who love the craft of teaching. And then of course, like, I just think that students deserve schools that are radically better. It returns to education. We live in a different world than we lived in, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. Your chances of having a thriving, full, rich life, if you weren't successful in school, were much higher. I mean, there are lots of people who are very successful and have great lives and were not successful in school. And I would say, like, I have taught many of their children. I would say 99 of the best 100 parents I've met in my life are parents who, you know, live in neighborhoods with limited resources and, you know, the finances and the logistics of their daily lives are incredibly challenging and they're still great, great parents and great people. Like, yeah, I don't want to apply that not being successful in school, you know, causes you to have failure in your life. But there aren't as many middle-class jobs where you can go work on the assembly line and, you know, make $30 an hour and raise your family in a way when you don't have to worry all the time about can I afford a doctor and those sorts of things. It's a knowledge economy and there are more and more gains that accrue to the people who have the opportunity that can play that game. Students need schools that are not just a little bit better. They need schools that are radically better than what we have now, particularly kids who grew up in families when they can't exercise choice, you know, like people are mandated by law to send their children to schools. Do you know about cold their values as parents? And do not educate their children and do not help those parents to build a life for their children where they can accomplish their dreams. I just, I think that that's wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I hope that I've helped people create a significant number of classrooms that are radically better in places where those classrooms did not exist. Because mm -hmm. kids just deserve it. End of story. They just deserve it. And it's unconscionable that it's so rare in our society. It's normal for a child not to get a great education in this country. I just don't. It's okay. Well, Doug, we started talking about Teach Like a Champion. We went off to thinking about coaching and belonging. We had a, a conversation about your parenting. We talked a little bit about the role of coaching. We talked about innovation and your legacy. And then we had a, a quick detour on the role of things like video and feedback and the nature of teaching learning in the classroom. And uh, could not be more proud to have had this conversation with you cannot be more appreciative of your passion, of the things that you've given to the public education space. And I want to say thank you for spending time with us today on innovations in public education. Oh, it's totally my pleasure. I appreciate it. And I'm grateful for all of your fantastic work on behalf of families and their young people as well. So mutual admiration society. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our latest episode of Innovations in Education, where we bring education leaders who have made things work in the education sector. If you like this episode, please subscribe so that you can hear more great content around innovations in education. I've been your host, David Adams. Have a great day.